So Mark chapter 5, 1 to 20. They came to the other side of the sea and to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind, bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see it, what was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that it might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marvelled. Good morning, everybody. It's marvellous that you're here this morning on this long weekend that you haven't gone away. Um, uh, th there's no better place to be, but uh, thank you for coming along this morning. It's great to uh, gather together. Uh, my name's Rob, Rob Cox, and I'm bringing you the message from the passage that Emily just uh, read to us. So, um, so keep your Bibles open as we have a look at this passage. I'll pray, I'll pray to start. Heavenly Father, thank you for that you do reveal yourself to us, that you give us your word. And Lord, as we uh, listen out for what you have to say to us this morning, may you give us ears to hear and hearts to take in what you have to say to us, that we would... Uh, at the end of it, be more thankful, more faithful, and more fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's fun to be had from rhymes and riddles and poems. I don't know if you have a favourite, but uh, one of my favourites, some of you might know it, it was written by somebody called Hughes Mearns in 1899. Does that ring any bells? But listen to the, to the poem, and uh, it may or may not. Last night I saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. How I wish he'd go away. All, all the individual elements make sense on their own, but put together, 
well, they don't fit together. And you're left wondering, is there a man? Uh, is he little? Like, is he like five, five and a half foot? Or is he a dwarf? Or is he a little miniature that might sit on your shoulder and whisper in your ear? Uh, is he imaginary? Is he a phantom? Is he a hologram? Or is he real, uh, like a part of some form of alternate reality? Well, before I say anything else about today's passage, I want to establish what Mark is talking about when he mentions unclean spirits and demon possession. Are these spirits real? Or should we be thinking of something imaginary when we read the passage? Are the spirits fictional? Are they something inside the man's head? Well, consider first that this passage is in the middle of three events that occur in a series. Last week's passage was about Jesus calming a storm, a real event. Next week's passage is about Jesus' encounter with someone who is sick and with another person who dies. Once again, both real events. So it's reasonable to conclude that Mark considers the encounter with the unclean spirit to be real as well. When pondering, is demon possession a real thing? What would it look like in today's world? If we were to witness destructive behaviours in a person, might it not just be a mental illness? Well, there are many examples out there that provide an answer to this question. But I'll focus on uh, one from a doctor whose name is Dr Richard Gallagher. Dr Gallagher was trained in psychiatry at Yale and psychoanalysis in Columbia, uh, at, at Columbia University. Now, there was a Catholic priest who was ministering to a woman who claimed devotion to Satan. She claimed to serve Satan as his queen. And the priest asked Dr Gallagher for his opinion as to whether the woman might be suffering from a mental disorder. And Dr Gallagher agreed to see her as he, he thought that's what it would be. He was sceptical about any alternative explanation. And in fact, the priest sought out Dr Gallagher because the priest knew that he would be hard to convince uh, that, that demonic activity was to blame for the woman's behaviour. But her behaviour exceeded what he could explain with his training. For example, she knew how individuals that she'd never known had died, including Dr Gallagher's own mother who had died from ovarian cancer. She was observed going into trances in which she was heard speaking multiple languages, including Latin, with which she was otherwise unfamiliar. So it was not psychosis, it was a paranormal ability. And Dr Gallagher's conclusion, that she was possessed. For two and a half decades, uh, Dr Gallagher has been uh, going on to help clergy from multiple denominations and faiths to filter episodes of mental illness, which was the vast majority of the ones that he saw, from literally the devil's work. So the demonic is real and Jesus confronted it. Throughout Mark, we've been seeing how Jesus has unlimited majesty. He's majestic in the splendour of his goodness, and he is majestic in the supremacy of his power. And in today's passage, 
We see this unlimited majesty continue in the context of demonic activity. Jesus is stronger than the demonic, and so he casts out demons. So that's what today's sermon is. Jesus is stronger than the demonic, and so he casts out demons. Let's work our way through the passage. As well as Jesus, we're going to meet three main players in this whole event. We're going to meet the unclean spirits, the Gentile people of the region, and the demon-possessed man. And we'll have a look at the response of each when they meet the unlimited majesty of Jesus. We'll see the unclean spirits, that they are a limited menace. We'll see the Gentile people of the region, that they have limited minds. And we'll see the demon-possessed man, that he receives unlimited mercy. We'll, start, we'll go to verse 1 now. And Jesus is with his disciples. He's crossing the Sea of Galilee from their home territory to the Gentile territory of the Gerasenes on the opposite coastline. And as soon as they pull ashore and they step out of the boat, they are met by a man who is living among the tombs. This is a man who is unfit to be in the presence of the Lord God. He came from the nearby tombs in verse 2. In verse 3, we see he lived in the tombs. In case you weren't paying attention, Mark goes on in verse 5 to say that night and day he was among the tombs. According to Jewish law, anyone who came into contact with the dead was considered unclean. The Old Testament law tells us, if you look in Numbers chapter 19, whoever touches a dead person and does not cleanse himself with a ritualistic cleansing defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Such a person was barred from coming into the, into the place of God's presence, into the temple or into the tabernacle, and they were barred from being one of God's people. And yet, here was this God, the Son, bringing himself into the presence of the contaminated individual. So the unclean person can't go to God, but God himself comes to the unclean person. Here is a picture of the character of God. He comes to people when they're in an unworthy state. He's come to us when we were in an unworthy state. Not one of us was worthy before him when our God came to give us life and joy and peace. What a marvellous God we've got. What a marvellous God that we're in the presence of. As, back to the man. Even if somehow he managed to avoid direct contact with the dead in the tombs, Nevertheless, he was, he was unclean. He lived in a Gentile country and therefore he would have followed another God, a different God that made him unclean. And in verse 2, he was possessed of an unclean spirit. And we're going to turn our attention now to the unclean spirit because the whole paragraph from verse 3 onwards is about the encounter between the unlimited majesty of Jesus with the limited menace of the unclean spirit. The unclean spirit 
has great power. His presence gives the man um, superhuman strength. In verse 4, he wrenched chains apart. He broke shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And in verse 7 onwards, it's the Spirit's voice that speaks to Jesus out of the man rather than the man speaking, the, the man to whom the voice box belongs. So the Spirit's power, it's great, but it's not only great, it's destructive. In verse 5, the, the presence of the Spirit caused the man to be crying and uh, bruising and cutting himself with stones. If we look elsewhere in Scripture, in John 10, the thief only, comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. This Spirit is one such thief. He has stolen the man's life. And while he hasn't succeeded in killing and destroying the man as yet, his intention of doing so is confirmed uh, by the destruction of the pigs when the spirit is cast out into the pigs in verse 13. The spirit brings misery. And it's not just a misery of unfortunate circumstances. He intentionally causes misery. Hence, I've called him a menace. Not, not just like Dennis the menace, but a menace of diabolical proportions. When he meets Jesus, he recognises Jesus. He knows even when Jesus is far off. In verse 6, have a look at verse 6. He, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So it seems to be while Jesus was still on the boat, the Spirit looked out to sea and he could see six men in a leaky boat, or perhaps 13, as the case may be. And so even though they were just tiny little, little uh, figures out in the distance, he, could, he knew that one of them amongst the men was Jesus. So he came to meet Jesus immediately when he stepped out of the boat. He recognises Jesus as a formidable foe. He did what he could to catch Jesus off guard so that Jesus might turn around and go back to where he came from, go back to his own corner. You see, in the first century, enemies would seek to assert their dominance over, uh, over their opponents by showing that they knew the opponent's name. So just like if I, if I said if somebody was doing something wrong back there, Sam, stop looking at your phone and see... I knew Sam's, <laughs> Sam's name. So, so I was able to, to uh, assert my dominance. <laughs> if, if I just said, oh, I could, you know, if, you, if you're playing with your phone back there, it wouldn't have had the same effect. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> Caught out. Um, I've, <laughs> I've got to find where I'm up to now. Uh, right, yeah. And, and the, the Spirit says in verse 7, Jesus, son of the most high God. He knew Jesus' name. He did what he could do. He's, he's, like, a, he's like a terrier. If there's a little terrier dog and that he sees a great big dog, a Rottweiler or something coming along the path. And the terrier, does he run away and hide and get out of the way? No, he stands there coming as close as he's game to and bark, bark, bark to try to, to uh, call the bluff of the Rottweiler and... Uh, and that's what the evil spirit is doing here, trying to call 
uh, Jesus' bluff. Nevertheless, the spirit knew his own limitations in comparison to Jesus. The most high God who has come in the flesh. He could not resist, as Jesus repeatedly commanded uh, in verse 8, come out of you, uh, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So in response to Jesus, the spirit is a beggar. In verse 7, the spirit, the one who is the tormentor, begs not to be tormented himself. In verse 10, have a look. He begs, don't send us away out of the country. In verse 12, he begs, send us into the pigs instead. Before Jesus, the spirit is just a beggar. And this is what Jesus permits him to do. He permits him to be sent out into the pigs. Just as an aside, the unclean spirit is a singular being, up to verse 8, and uh, he reveals himself to be many in verse 9. His name is Legion. He's named after the military division of 6,000 men, and so signifying the many. And he changes from using I and me to us and we. The most likely explanation is the spirits were akin to a gang whose spokesman was the main intimidator, speaking in the first person, similar to Goliath, uh, representing all the Philistines, the Philistine army against the Israelites. Um, and so when he spoke to the Israelites, he spoke to them in the first person. Whatever the exact nature of the spirits being, it's not the key issue here. Rather, the main thing is that the spirits are no match for Jesus. What does all this mean for us if we were to encounter an evil spirit? Well, as God's people, first thing, first and foremost, we are not to go looking for evil spirits, as if our role is to pick a fight so as to show off the strength that we have in the Lord. That's not our role. However, God does tell us to be aware and to be ready. Be aware be ready, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. And another one, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6. My experience in 35 years of belonging to the Lord is a single encounter in which a brother had taken off part of his armour. I'll call him Edward. It's not his real name, but just to protect his identity. Edward had put his breastplate of righteousness aside to indulge in a habitual sin, and he fell prey to what appears to be an evil spirit. Myself and one other uh, brother became involved when there was an episode in which Edward was lying on the floor he had a strange voice, a strained voice coming from him. And I can't remember the exact words, but, but as we were praying to, uh, for the Spirit to leave him in the name of Jesus Christ, the voice was saying something along the lines that, that he belonged in, within Edward. Just like in today's passage, in which the Spirit put up resistance and did not leave immediately on Jesus' command, it took about half an hour of persistent prayer for Edward to come 
into his right mind, free from the evil spirit and ready to turn away from the habitual sin. The evil spirits, they are a menace, but their power is limited. It's a marvellous thing that Jesus is more powerful than anything which would control us. Here's the thing. If any of us here have an issue that is controlling your life, Jesus is more powerful than the life-controlling issue. He desires to set you free, and he can do it. And he uses his people to assist in achieving this. So share your situation with fellow believers, with a fellow believer whom you trust. Now the next players in this whole event are the people of the, of the Gerasene region, the ones I've designated as being of limited minds. Among them are some herdsmen, and they're probably the ones who, who own the pigs that were uh, destroyed courtesy of Legion. Verse 16, if we have a look there, it reveals that they were witness to the whole encounter between Jesus and the demon-possessed man, the one who has been made well. And for short, I'm going to call him Manuel. Uh, please note that's not his real name. We never find out what his real name is, but, but I kept on, otherwise I kept on having to say, oh, the man who is possessed by the demon. So I'm going to call him Manuel. In verse 14, these herdsmen flee throughout the region and they tell the people what had happened to the pigs and to Manuel. And the people have had previous dealings with Manuel. They had done what they could do to deal with the evil spirit in Manuel. In verse 4, they had attempted to bind him with shackles and chains, presumably to protect him from himself and from others. But now it was clear to them they could see Jesus had set him free. He was now clothed. Luke's account tells us of this same episode, tells us that, that he had had no clothes. So now he was clothed and he was in his right mind. What a magnificent thing. What a, imagine being there and, and seeing this man who'd been bruised and out of control in his right mind. What an event worthy of celebration. But this was not the people's response. Rather than celebrate with Manuel, because a great liberator had come to their region, in verse 17, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. What a bizarre response. What were they thinking? They were afraid, it says in verse 15. They were afraid. What caused them to fear? Here's my explanation for you to consider. So in biblical times, the nations considered each region had its own deity. So the deity they worshipped was a local one. And they did what they considered necessary to maintain the favour with their local deity or keep their own deity placated. The Gerasenes, like every other nation, had worked out in their own minds what was required to keep the equilibrium of their society, to keep their own deity placated. To keep things functioning. And here, infiltrating into their territory, 
was a God who showed himself to be more powerful than their own God. If they allowed this new God into their region, what would be required of them to placate this God? If this God were to become the God of their region, there may be much more required of them in order to keep his greater power from overpowering them. So this is the thinking by which they made sense of their world. Limited thinking from limited minds. They did not have the gratitude in their hearts for what had happened to Manuel. And they did not have the curiosity in their minds to discover what they were actually encountering. If we think about our own times today, people can have a similar response to the Gerasenes when they encounter the unlimited majesty of Jesus. And there may be some of you here today who have not yet put your hope in Jesus. Thank you to Pete for his word on, about hope with uh, the man that he met. If you haven't put your hope in Jesus, despite the living Lord Jesus showing himself to be supreme over all, to be the great liberator from sin and death and the devil, if this is you, well, I'll give you my story from earlier in my life. Because for years, my response had been the same as that of the Gerasenes. At this time, back in my 20s, I erroneously thought that I had to perform the right balance of good works to outweigh my bad deeds in order to earn favour with God. I failed to see that it was Jesus who did the work that earned favour with God on my behalf. So while I was busy trying to do the good works, I was in effect pushing God away, asking him to leave me alone so I could get on with doing it all by myself. I was acting in the same way that the Gerasenes did when they asked God, the Son, Jesus, to leave them alone, when God had come to them in person. They wanted him to leave them alone so that they could get on with placating the divine being on their own. Now, fortunately, in my case, the Lord broke through my way of thinking and he showed me that I couldn't earn favour with God, that all I needed to do was to trust that Jesus had taken the rap for my abominations. Now, for those of us, pay attention for those of us who've already belonged to the Lord, because we too can be limited in our thinking if we're not careful. We can take what we know, and we don't know everything, and from that we can develop a view of the world so it makes sense for us. And sometimes we may fail to take on board whatever the Lord continues to cross our path. And sometimes we may block revelation from the Lord from entering our mind. So we don't adjust our, our uh, worldview to align it to uh, more to his revelation. Sometimes we think our own way of thinking is just plain right, even though it's a way of thinking that's been built on a limited foundation. So what I'm really encouraging here is keep on being transformed by the renewal of your minds, as Paul tells us in, in Romans 12. Let's have our minds, our thinking, refined by God. Be hungry for the word of God. Be hungry for the word to continually to refine 
our hearts and our minds. Now, the last player in this event for us to consider is the man who was demon-possessed, the man who received unlimited mercy, the man I've called Manuel, although his name's not really Manuel. Just to recap the liberation that Jesus had provided for Manuel, his existence had been living alone, among the tombs, crying out, bruising and cutting himself. But now... He was dressed, he was sitting in his right mind. But this transformation did not cause celebration among his own people, but rather it caused them to fear. And so naturally, the man wants to stay with Jesus, to go where Jesus went. But Jesus had more in store for Manuel than just setting him free from legion. He had more than just a life for Manuel to escape from, the life that had been the demon-possessed life of torment. He had a life for Manuel to enter into. And there were two major things in this new life. Number one, he had friends. He had friends. And number two, he had a testimony to share with those friends. If we look in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, there are two really interesting things I find that Jesus says in this section. The first is, in verse 19, go and tell. See this contrast with what Jesus has been saying so far with his miracles. All along in, uh, through Mark's Gospel, all along he's been saying, don't tell. Uh, for example, after cleansing a leper in chapter 1, don't tell. And we're going to see later on in chapter 9, after the transfiguration, he charges his disciples to, t- to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So in other words, don't tell until the whole purpose of Jesus' ministry is there to tell. The fact that Jesus, the one who has defeated death, is Lord of all. Don't tell when it seems like Jesus' purpose is just to be a miracle worker. They come and take your hardships away. So that's the first interesting thing. The second one is that the Lord has had mercy on Manuel. This tells us, that Jesus was releasing Manuel from a situation that he deserved to be in. That's what the word mercy means. And it wasn't just temporary mercy, but the everlasting mercy achieved when Jesus rose from the dead. It's implied that Jesus was forgiving Manuel from whatever caused him to deserve his former life. It's because the mercy is everlasting that I've designated it to be unlimited mercy. Now, Jesus' action in this whole encounter with Manuel uh, demonstrated the whole purpose of his ministry. It demonstrates the revealing of Jesus' lordship, which would be completed by his death and resurrection. And so, given that the whole purpose of Jesus' ministry had been involved in in what Manuel received, Manuel was tasked with telling what had happened. And Manuel's response 
what did he do? He went and he told. Manuel's response was to go and tell. We share in this task. We, us here today, having accepted Jesus as Lord, having received the everlasting mercy which the Lord grants us, having received security from the demonic, we participate with Christ in the work of the kingdom, bearing witness to how much the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy on us. As we finish the service today, I encourage us all, let's keep on reflecting on how much the Lord has done for us, that we, you and, and I, will have something to share that we don't want to keep to ourselves. Let's start such conversation even as we mix with each other in fellowship at the end of the service today. Let's, uh, I'm, I'll uh, go into prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that it is in every aspect of life that Jesus has authority, including over the demonic. Thank you that you provide for the renewing of our, of our minds, that you provide your revelation, your word. Thanks that in Christ you, Lord, are desiring to restore us from, where, from whatever robs us of uh, abundant life. Thanks that despite everything about us that deserves your blessing to be withheld, you extend everlasting mercy to us. And lastly, we pray that if there are any of us who until now have not recognised the Lordship of Jesus and how we don't deserve him and the mercy that he has for us and the restoration and the peace that he brings, then may this person say to you, I acknowledge all these things now and rejoice in the new life that you give me. And with great joy, I'll tell somebody here today how much the Lord has done for me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.